slovenly trolls, slovenly trolls, we're big, bad, evil girls. Hello, and welcome to the Slovenly Trolls podcast. I am your host, Lissa, and co-host, Charday. Thank you. Can I not say I'm Charday and I'm no. Charday anymore? Okay. I'm, I'm doing the intro, therefore I have to, you know, bring you in as the first person on this episode. So steamroll the conversation is what you mean. Yes. Okay, fine. Continue. So we are your hosts for this podcast, this bi-monthly podcast, and we are the flesh suits slash skeletons with no brains that, you know, appear on your audio platform of your choice every month. So welcome. This month, we will be talking about Elise Gygax, and that is actually a plug for our very first episode, uh, which was episode one, which we did mention her. Yeah. Yeah, we did mention Ellie Skygax in our first episode, and we actually I mentioned people. I mentioned her one time, and I mentioned one fact about her, and then I have not heard the end of it since from, like, multiple people. This is proof that if you pester us on social media or otherwise, we'll probably give you what you want. Depending on what it is, of course. Depending on what it is. If, if it's within our area of expertise. I thought that was implied but you know this is the internet so probably not implied (laughs) (laughs) yes so we will be talking about elise gygax and her time as a model for tsr so these will be referencing some advertisements that she did in the late 1970s and the episode we have for you today is in three parts so part one we'll talk about the ads themselves so what are they what do they look like and what is happening hello Hello. Part two will be Elise Gygax and the environment at TSR. So a little bit of context about her person and where she was brought up in or where she was working. And part three will be some context for advertising. So, you know, the good stuff, the good theory stuff that you came here for because you love it as much as we love it. Don't pretend like you don't. Why else are you here, really? Our sparkling personalities. (laughs) Our brain-dead sparkling personalities. Our brain-dead sparkling... Can that please be on a t-shirt? Our brain-dead sparkling personalities with little twinkles and, like, glitter font. (laughs) Uh, You will be seeing this content on the Instagram very soon. (laughs) Yes, please. Uh, So, as a disclaimer, we are talking about real people again. Um, we've said this before, we will say it again. And we have no hate towards Elise. We love her. You know, she's been part of TSR and she has influenced what has become D&D today. As she was the daughter, is the daughter of Gary Gygax, the OG creator of D&D. Well, one of them. And we will be coming at this topic from a millennial cishet and feminist point of view so we do have biased opinions we acknowledge our bias yes we acknowledge our biased opinions we do stick to the facts where we can and then we'll let you know if something is an opinion instead of a fact and without further ado part one sure day take it away all right so part one the ads so in this episode we're going to be talking specifically about three ads 
that Elise Gygax is confirmed to be in. So the first two ads were published in 1977. We're not quite sure where they were published. I couldn't find any information on it when I looked into it. I don't think Lisa could either. They appear to be either, they could easily be in a poster in a game shop, or they could be in a magazine. How they're laid out could really be anything, and I didn't find any clear answers on it. But the first ad is a picture of Elise, and she has her head turned toward the camera, kind of looking over her shoulder. Her eyes are kind of wide and doughy. Her lips are pursed in what I would consider to be kind of a seductive, coy look. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but it, it does kind of ring true to be like very like, ooh, you know, like looking over the shoulder like, ooh. She has like nice fair faucet hair and she is holding in her two hands the Monster Manual because in 1977 was the year that the very first Monster Manual was published by TSR. So I think that's what spawned this whole ad campaign. And it's like a blue background and it's very stereotypical 1970s where it's like an all colored background and then there's a inset picture in the middle and then a bunch of text underneath the picture. But there's also a title above the picture and it asks the question, what's in demand today? Pretty harmless. It's a nice pretty girl at the forefront of this image showing off the latest product of TSR. I don't really see anything particularly wrong with this picture, but it's the second picture that really gets you because I believe this is from the same shoot or around the same time because she appears to be wearing the same outfit. So this second ad, I think this is the one that caught our attention and I definitely remember finding it when I was doing research into Gary Gygax. I don't really know why this image came up, but it did and it got me asking a lot of questions. This picture, very similar to the first one, all blue background, inset image, text at the bottom, text at the top. Elise is now sitting on the ground. She has her legs outstretched with one knee propped up. She is revealed to be in heels. She's in what appears to be like a leopard print bodysuit with short shorts and stockings. She's holding or like balancing the monster manual on an upticked knee. She's also sitting in front of two cardboard displays of TSR products, I believe. One of them is Dungeon, the board game, something else called Warlocks and Warriors. And then, of course, she's holding the monster manual. So she's advertising a plethora of TSR products. The kicker of this image, she also she has that same coy look, I would say, like looking over her shoulder a bit. Her head is propped up in her hand. And she's looking at the camera, again, I would say, coyly, come hithery, that's a word, a phrase, come hithery. And what really solidifies this is the text at the top of the advertisement says where the action is. So it's this woman sitting in front of displays, holding a monster manual on the floor, looking coyly at you, the person consuming the ad, and saying where the action is during the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons run. Da fuck. Lissa, thoughts? <laughs> Wearing leopard print, no less? Yeah, it's leopard print, yeah. Yeah, it's... In both of these ads, I, as the expert artiste and person of visual means, like, 
I my eye is drawn. Okay, the first one in What's in Demand today. She's looking over her shoulder. The first thing you look at is her. You don't even notice the man monster manual. You look at her face. It's there's a it's the direct eye contact you make with her and her face cuz you know how eyes have like power and when you you sometimes even randomly turn around to look at someone who's looking at you because you can just feel them looking at you that the eyes have power and when you look at this image for me especially i think the first thing i look at is her i look at her face i look at her features i look at her eyes and then i notice oh hello she's uh holding something but it's almost like I'm not sure what to look at. My eye is drawn between her and the product. So is this a good marketing ad be- or photo? Because I'm mostly looking at her, and then I go to the monster manual, and then I go back to her, and I'm mostly just looking at her. Yeah, I I have the same thoughts. Like, I, I have a note here. I'm confused as to what they're selling. Are they selling the book or the products behind her, or are they selling her? Which is a very icky thought to have about something like this because clearly you want people to buy the product but and she is holding the product with the intent of selling it however are they therefore implying that oh if you have the monster manual you too can have a woman look coyly at you or you can have this woman look at you coyly or something like that it's very common advertising technique i think and we'll get more into that later when we talk about advertising theory but I had that thought when I was looking at it too. Like I'm confused as to what they're selling. And I heard, I heard, more I read. I read on the interwebs as people were, there are forums that have this image on there. There's discussion about these ads specifically. Some of them okay, some of them not so okay. But a common theme I saw is a lot of people were equating these two ads specifically to cheesecake advertising, which is a type of advertising that's basically another word for pinup. Like they're using her as a pinup model. That's something else to consider. Like, did they have cheesecake pinup modeling as an inspiration to this too? I can't say for sure, but when I saw people compare it and then I looked up what cheesecake advertising was because I wasn't 100% sure. It's all these images of like 1950s models, that some of which are drawn, some of which later on are what you would stereotypically associate with being a pinup model. I don't know. I think I can see some inspiration of that there as well yeah def- definitely um especially in the second one in the where the action is where she's sitting on the floor you can see her whole body mm-hmm. there you can see how her legs are placed she's very like she is she is the ideal image of a woman and you do you do have the two stands behind her and she is holding a product you can't really see so the way the image is taken it's taken from further away so you can't really tell, well, maybe also we we don't have a good quality photo of this or a poster of this, but you can't really tell from what I'm looking at what the product looks like, especially the ones that are on the stands, because they are partially covered by like the bottom part of the stand that's holding it up because it also has like advertising space and text on it. So the product is slightly covered by, you know, branding stuff on the stand itself. So the only one you can actually kind of really see is the one she's holding up. But even so, the I'm I'm looking at a bad quality photo of it. So 
the thing you're drawn to is her, essentially. Yeah. Because it's not a close-up photo of the product. The products are kind of there, but kind of not there. This is more about branding the company in a way, because it's showcasing mm-hmm. more than Dungeons and Dragons. It's also showcasing the Warlocks and Warriors book and the Dungeon exclamation mark book or product. Yeah, I think that's a board game. Yeah, so it's it's more branding than it is selling just these products. Yeah, and I I think that our kind of instincts that point to are they selling her or the product and how we can't we're not really focused on the product. I think maybe they gained some self-awareness of that after they did this two ad campaign because we also found a third ad with Elise Gygax from 1979, which, Lissa, you can go ahead and describe for us. So this is two years after the initial two ads were published, I believe, is when shot and published. So this is two years after that. We found a third Mm. advertisement. And I think the final advertisement she ever appeared in. Yeah, so this is in 1979, an advertisement for their third product, Gamma World. If you've listened to this podcast before, you may have heard us talk about Gamma World before. It is a tabletop role-playing game that specifically, and this is a plug to our previous episode, the TSR episode, Gamma World was a big influence for Steven Dinehart when he created Giantlands, but... If you want to know more about that, please listen to our previous TSR episode. So Gamma World is a sci-fi fantasy tabletop role-playing game, which is set in a post-atomic environment with radiation, deserts, mutants, all that good stuff. It is said to be more for adult players, according to the advertisement itself. And it does feature Ernie's Game Wizards logo. So this appeared in the White Dwarf magazine, number 12, in the April-May period of 1979. This was published in the UK, and it features an issue with Gary Gygax in the magazine. So in the White Dwarf magazine, number 12. I have a I have a question. So mm. when you say this is Ernie's game with game wizards logo, what Ernie are you talking about? So Ernie Ernie Gygax, the son of Gary Gygax. So right. I to explain, Ernie Gygax designed the wizard logo, and we went over this in our previous episode, in the TSR episode, actually. This is the first time that we've kind of seen it in action after doing this episode. Yeah. There are three Elise Gygaxes presented in the image itself. There is one standing in the forefront, hand on her hip, looking directly at the camera. She is wearing a silver bodysuit with short shorts and thigh-high boots. It's a reflective silver material. On her left side is her bending the knee and shooting something, which is out of the picture frame. And there is a third part of her that is behind her standing self, also shooting something 
you can't really see that one. It's it's more of a hand with the gun shooting something that's out of the picture frame. This is a very post-apocalyptic image. She's standing in rubble. There's darkness behind her. It's very mysterious. It's a long exposure shot. So if you don't know what that is, it's essentially you press the camera and then you the camera takes a long photo, a long time to take the photo. And depending on how long you stand in one place, it'll track all the movement of the things in the photo. So she's standing in the middle, she's standing on the left, and she's also standing on the right doing various different things. There's also moving lights. There's a fire behind her. And there's lead lighting that have been used to create an image or what appears to be her shooting something and also behind her head. This will make more sense if you look on our Instagram, which will post up all these photos. Or you can look these up on the internet as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a very rubble scene. There's stuff behind her. She's standing there looking at the camera. And what you can tell from this is essentially what I was talking about. It's post-atomic. It's for adults. She's looking directly at the camera, so you're drawn to her. She has her lips slightly parted, so she is modeling, and it is very sexy. She's wearing, you know, you can see skin, and she has her bodysuit slightly, the zipper of her bodysuit slightly pulled down. She's wearing thigh-high boots. She has a look of confidence. You know, this is a very sexy lady looking at the camera. And the text below says, we've been expecting you. So I would say it is slightly sultry, seductive. She's standing with confidence, you know, hand on her hip. It's provocative and it's evocative. You're seeing the environment of the game that they're trying to create. I would say that it's like a slightly better advertisement than the previous two we talked about because it's actually bringing you into the environment of the game, which is Gamma World, the sci-fi fantasy, very cool looking, bright colors, lead lighting, movement, action shot. What would you say? I agree. Yeah, I think this is a much better advertisement because, yeah, they are – I think they're still, like, selling her, but now she's dressed up in what we can only assume to be the, like, common gear or gear that you would find in Gamma World. She's in the environment. Like, you can see, I believe – again, this is not a great uh, resolution of photo. So it, it, it does look like she's in a desert of some kind or a dirt floor of some kind out in the wild. And if I, if I could summarize the vibes of this picture in one term, sexy Fallout, I'm just putting that out there. Sure. Like if you, if, you, if you play the Fallout games, it's like sexy Fallout. Like imagine your vault dweller in, instead of their vault suit, they're in like a reflective bodysuit. <laughs> and that's what this kind of reminds me of. Because even the guns that she is shooting I don't know if this is due to the long exposure shot or editing and post-production, but it looks like she's shooting like lasers. No, it definitely looks like she's shooting lasers. Yeah, it's a way more effective marketing technique, and it definitely leans into the second image that we talked about. It's way 
more connected to the where the action is photo than it is the what's in demand photo. And it knows what it's doing and it's doing it better because it knows what it's doing. Mm. And not to say that the first two images don't know what they're doing, but I feel like they were trying to sell a book and they weren't trying to sell an experience in this photo. They're trying to sell an experience and not the manual. Definitely. Which is, in my opinion, a much better tactic for advertising or just for any promotional needs that you have. Yeah. It, It is mysterious because it is set in the dark. You can't really see what's behind her. And she is shooting from both sides of herself, really. She is shooting something that we can't see because it's cropped so that you don't actually see what she's appearing to be shooting. So it is. there's a sense of mystery there Yeah, that adds to it. And by now you're probably wondering, Lissa, Charday, why are you just talking about a very pretty lady modeling for Dungeons and Dragons and using sexy advertising techniques. Well, dear listener, I'm so glad you asked. Because, yeah, while sex sells advertising in Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing is kind of odd, because especially in this time, I don't think Dungeons and Dragons was synonymous with being sexy, and I don't think they quite knew their brand identity yet. Personal opinion, not a fact. But the reason that we're talking about these, and we're making a point to say that we interpret them as sexual and sexy. There's another factor, another layer to this situation in the fact that at the time of the 1977 shoot specifically, Elise Gygax was 16 years old. So two years after that for the Gamma World shoot, that would make her 18 years old. There are child models out out there. Like there are 16, 18-year-old models that are sexualized. Yes, this is a problem with the modeling industry of which neither of us have experience or enough knowledge to talk about on this episode that could have been a different episode all in itself or maybe a different focus for this episode. But it's just, if if you remember, Elise Gygax is Gary Gygax's daughter. And he used his 16-year-old daughter for the first, like, I I believe to be the first, like, camera shot almost pinup-esque advertisement for his game. And I just think personally that that's a bit weird. Personally. It is. It is a bit iffy. Yes, it is very iffy. And I said this on the first episode, and I think other people also think it because they have not stopped bugging me since. (laughs) The only proof that we have, I did look, I, I was a creep, I did look and I tried to see when Elise Gygax's birthday was. I could not find it <laughs> anywhere. She's a very private person, which is totally fine. That's her prerogative. It's probably good that I couldn't find her birthday. But in order to back up this claim that she was 16, because the first hint that I got that Elise Gygax was 16 years old when she was doing these pinup photos, essentially, was from forums. And one such forum post was on dragonsfoot.com, where Tim Kask, who uh, is a former employee of TSR, posted a link to a photo to quote an amusing picture from 1976. I think she was about 15, as I recall. I couldn't find what this photo was. I'm not sure if he was referring to these photos that we talked about. I'm assuming not because they are confirmed to be published in 1977. But if we do the math on that, 1976, 15, plus one year, 16. Still a child. 
We're good at math, as you can tell. I'm so good at math. I'm a DM. I'm so good at math. <laughs> Um, And then he also goes on to say further on in this thread on Dragon's Foot, which we will link to, it's still up, specifically about the where the action is photo from 1977. He said, quote, I won't tell you how young she was then, dot, dot, dot. You'd have to take a shower. L-O-L. Ew. So you're making our 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 listeners can't see this, but Lissa's making the most egregious face right now. Please share your initial thoughts when I read read you these quotes. <laughs> I mean, it it goes to say that I I know this as well because I I read I tried to look up information about Elise Gygax and these advertisements. I know people remember these ads specifically. I and and when I say people, I mean men on forums, reacting to, oh, such a sexy, you know, Elise Gygax, oh, the redhead, oh, this, that. Them loving the advertisement because, you know, it's a hot woman with the TSR product. You know, what's better than that for, you know? But, but, but she's not a woman. She's not a woman. Yeah. She is a girl. She is a child. She is a child. And on top of this, on the same Dragon's Foot post, I think this is the same thread, there is a user who I will not name, but if you want to look at the page and see what this username was, you are more than welcome to, but I will not say it. They made two comments. One, huh? There is something behind her in reference to the where the action is ad with all of those books behind her. Second, I believe this is when... This is in reply to when Tim Cass said, hey, you might need to take a shower after you realize how old she is. The same user said, oh, it balances out because I was actually younger than she was when that picture was taken. That doesn't, that doesn't make it any better. That's so gross. And then another user said, well, let's just say that I've seen that picture a good few times. and This is the first time I've noticed the product behind her winky face. Mm. And this is this is not new information. Like we we do know that women are very overly sexualized, not only in advertising, but in basically any industry ever, not even just in modeling or entertainment, even if it's a businesswoman, even if it's somebody in fucking why I like like chemical engineering, let's say Mm. women are always overly sexualized, no matter what with we're without their consent. It's just it just makes it so much more gross because she was 16 Mm. and The last point I think we'll say about this, because there's really only so much yelling and screaming that we can do about the fact that she was 16 and 18 when this happened and basically a literal child. I had to look up what the child labor laws were for Wisconsin right before we recorded this episode. And I looked up in 1933, chapter 143 of the child labor law in Wisconsin revised the law as follows. A, was amended so that no child under 17 years of age could work at any time without first obtaining a permit except in domestic service, agricultural pursuits, and street trades. Heretofore, the age limit had been 16 years. So either Elise Gygax wasn't getting paid or Elise Gygax had to have a permit in order to do this. And the fact that I had to look up child labor laws, I think, says all I need to say about, like... One, using a 16-year-old for pinup photos, and two, adding another layer to it. This was one of the founders of D&D's children. And we'll get into a bit more about, like, the environment of TSR and, like, what kind of led to this. But 
if Gary Gygax did have a say, and we're not saying that he didn't, did or didn't, but if he did have a say in his own company's advertising, how is this okay? I think is a good question to leave off on. Like, how is this okay? Even for the 70s? Like, Mm -hmm. like, put yourself in those shoes if you have a child or if you have a godchild, a niece, a nephew, whatever, and they are 16. Like, why would you sexualize them in that way? Or why would you be okay with that? And maybe Elise, this was Elise's idea. Maybe she wanted to do this and maybe her dad was iffy about it, but he let her do it because he loves her. We really don't know the circumstances of this and we tried to look into it. We tried to do like an expose. (laughs) We (laughs) tried. We tried to go for that angle like, oh, we solved the mystery, but there really isn't a whole lot out there. So, you know, we'll just leave the facts rest where it was. Elise Gygax was 16. Gary Gygax may or may not have had a hand in this ad campaign. And I believe both of our opinions are that's gross. And I think... We're going to be spending the the rest of the episode kind of contextualizing why it happened and how we can learn from it. Why it may have happened. Why it may have happened, yeah. So yeah. if you – that's the that's really the only angle we can approach this with. Like why it happened, maybe how it happened, and how we can learn from this. So if that sounds inter- interesting to you, keep listening because we have so many thoughts <laughs> that you will continue to hear. But – Without further ado, I think we are ready to move into part two. Oh, hi. It's me, Charday, here to interrupt your regularly scheduled Slovenly Trolls podcast to present you with our first mid-roll ad. Hello. Our friends at Snyder's Return have a message for you all. So sit back, relax, enjoy, and we'll see you shortly. Snyder's Return is a tabletop role-playing game interviews and actual play podcast. We interview content creators, Twitch streamers, and fellow podcasters, and we put out our own actual play using a variety of different systems. So come and join us, come and have a listen. You can find us on Twitter at Return Snyder. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or check out our website at www.snydersreturn.squarespace.com. Welcome to part two, Elise Gygax and the environment at TSR. So we're going to be giving you a little bit of context for the advertisements that we talked about in part one. So we're going to be talking about the time period of the advertisements, a little bit about Elise Gygax and some other people during that time at TSR, and about TSR as a company which are the ones who put out these ads. Add a little bit about the environment for women in TSR in that time period in the 1970s. And why are we doing this? For context. Context. Our bread and butter. Context is our bread and butter. Context is important for understanding why things happened. Context is background information, and you should know all the facts about the background and give things the benefit of the doubt. So we're giving the benefit of the doubt to TSR, to Elise Gygax, to the advertisements. 
Yeah, especially since, like, we don't know the 100% story of everything that went on. Mm -hmm. So presenting people with facts and drawing – we want to show people why we have the opinions that we do and drawing conclusions from the facts that we have Mm -hmm. because there isn't a public story about why Elise Gygax was a model as a 16-year-old girl at TSR at this time. So – it's important to understand the context, not only for your own edification, but also to understand why we're talking about this stuff. Yes. So without further ado, here is a brief biography. So about Elise Gygax, we don't have a lot of information, as we mentioned in our previous part, information from her back then or information from her today. We do know that the ads came out in the 1977, specifically, well, the first ones, in which she was 16. She's a very private person, but we do know that she was one of six siblings of Gary Gygax from his two marriages. She's specifically from his first marriage to Mary Jo, and she was one of the original playtesters of D&D in the Greyhawk campaign that Gary Gygax ran. She played with her brother, Ernie Gygax, and she was also part of TSR in different events. She presented awards at conventions that they had, and she also worked in TSR as an executive secretary around the 1980s. So TSR was a family company because we have heard about Ernie Gygax and Luke Gygax and also now Elise. They've all worked in the company or done done something in the company for the product or, you know, worked as part of the whole of TSR in some shape or form. Yeah, we, we stumbled upon a couple of, we stumbled upon an article that, Uh, confirms this and also a firsthand account that confirms this as well. So the first is a Medium article that says, after 1975, the steadily mounting popularity of Dungeons and Dragons enabled TSR hobbies to bring Gygax and Bloom as salaried staff. Further new hires drawn from the gaming community, including the immediate family of both Bloom and Gygax, assisted with advertising, creative design, artwork, shipping, and manufacturing. And we know that Elise helped with advertising. Mm -hmm. And I guess you can also say Ernie helped with advertising and creative design because he he drew the Wizards logo that we see. Yeah, he didn't draw it. He came up with the idea for the Wizards logo. So we we discussed this in our previous episode. If you didn't, if you haven't heard that one, so the TSR one. We just, yeah, we just, he, he has confirmed that the logo of the robed wizard when TSR first rebranded as the game wizards was of his mind, which is pretty cool. Mm. Speaking of Ernie Gygax, we also have a quote for him from him <laughs> confirming his role in early TSR history. This quote is from a clip from a 2012 D&D Kickstarter documentary that is now defunct. It was never released, and I don't know if it has plans to be released, like many D&D documentaries on kickstarter which was very weird that's something i also came across in my research there are a lot of defunct D kickstarters for like documentaries about D. why mm. is that i don't know that's another that's a topic <laughs> that's another episode that's another episode another deep dive another slovenly sleuths episode 
But I came across that. I'm just like, why are there so many from all these different production companies on Kickstarter who want to work on a D&D documentary, who put out stuff, who put out like clips from these documentaries saying, hey, we're working on this, but never release them. Like we see the footage. Why don't – anyway, this is from one of those clips that was used to promote the Kickstarter. It is an interview with Ernie. And he says, we would gather around the kitchen table, all the kids, whatever else, with sponges and things. And we'd be putting together book three, two, one, and we would get the box on, put the spine label on, put the front label on, stack it, put it in the box. And so dad would say, we're going to have to make 100 today, kids. We got to put together some of these games. So that, the quote from Ernie and the Medium article just kind of goes to show that the kids, so Ernie, Elise, even Luke Gygax, I believe the youngest of his first marriage, Luke Gygax, I believe, possibly. Maybe. There are a lot of Gygax children. I can't keep track of all of them. They go to show that this is a family company. So really, it's not super, super surprising that Elise Gygax was used in these ads because they hired their family or they used their family. Mm-hmm. I Again, we can't really say if Elise Gygax was paid because of child labor laws. However... I think this kind of goes to show it's not super surprising. So if you're asking, why did this happen? They hired their family a lot. That's a possible answer yeah. to that. But another aspect as to why Elise Gygax was framed the way that she was framed in these ads also has a bit to do with how TSR was as a company at the time. So in the 1970s, like what the environment was like. And through our research, we've kind of come to discover or kind of, I wouldn't say discover. I feel like we both had a feeling that the environment was like this from our research. I mean, yeah, based on everything we know about it and everything we know about Gygax and the 1970s, it's not surprising. It's also the gaming industry, and I'll just leave it at that. <clears throat> it's the gaming industry, TM. Like, we did a whole deep dive on, like, D&D art and some of the early art in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons is just a sight to behold. So I think we've had subconsciously the opinions that TSR in the early days was a boys club mm-hmm. because of the way they depicted women in their art, because of the <clears throat> harlot table, because of the strength caps. Mm-hmm. These were men making these decisions. And we have proof of this now, which we have some firsthand accounts, I believe, if Lissa would like to mm-hmm. take it away. I'm just going to add another comment before we go into that. Okay. Uh, so I did watch an interview with, was it Jim Ward? He gave a very specific comment that we might do, we might do an episode on maybe. So he did say that 95% of their players were male. Up until a certain yeah. up until a certain point where um, <clears throat> he blames the literature of Dragonlance for bringing in the women. He blames it or he credits it? Blames or credits. It's up to interpretation of what he said. I was going to say, does he say, I blame this for bringing in all the women? It's up to interpretation. Like... But yes, the okay. literature apparently brought in the women to D&D. So, yeah. Fun fact. Okay. Okay. Well... All right, we'll leave it at that. If you guys want, are interested in hearing a whole episode deep diving on that comment, <laughs> go ahead and hit us up on Twitter and Instagram or email us at slovenlytroll at gmail.com. <laughs> you want to hear? <laughs> right, so TSR environment and their treatment of women. 
We are not making any claims on anyone in TSR at the time um, from our personal points of view. These are claims of other people. We were not alive then. We were not part of the 1970s. We did not live then. We are spotlighting stories that we've come across, and these stories are from the opinions of other people. We are outsiders in this situation. It's important to note that neither Elise or Gary Gygax's first wife, Mary Jo, have made any public statements about their time in TSR history and the treatment that they had within the company. Right, because you have a first-hand account from Mary Jo. That's one of the accounts that you yes. found. Yes, I do. So we're going to start off this part with an interview with somebody who worked in TSR in the design department. Uh, she did the Dragon's Sage advice column. She's called Jean Wells. She worked there between 1979 and 1981. So quite soon after the advertisements, the first advertisements were made in 1977. Mm -hmm. Two years later, Gary Gygax gives Gene Wells a job in the Dragon's Sage advice column. In Dragon Magazine, right? That's where the column yes, is? Yes, I believe so. Okay. So she was the first woman hired as a designer by TSR. And she, in her interview, quotes that Gary knew I didn't know how to really write rules he told me he'd teach me how to do them his way. He was hiring my imagination and would teach me the rest. I also suspect, but I'm not positive, that being a girl had to do with being hired by TSR as well. So she does say that she was hired by G Gary himself and that Gary would teach her how to write the rules his way but that there may or may not have been an aspect that he was hiring her for a woman role within the company. Like just hiring her because she was a woman. Well, that's that's what she says. She suspects yeah. that that's what she was hired. Whether or not that has to do with they wanted a woman's point of view and, you know, they were trying to be inclusive or she was, who knows why they hired her. But she does say that specifically she may or may not have been hired because of her vagina. <laughs> I thought you were going to say her sex. We just went right for vagina. All right. <laughs> In this day and age, having a vagina, you don't need to be have a vagina to be a woman. Yeah. But at the time, yes, you unfortunately did. Yeah. What is, did she say anything else about her time there? She goes on to say that uh, she didn't have a mentor. And that cast her into the role of being a, I quote, token female. Now, reading that right after reading the previous quote that I said, where he literally told her that he would teach her how to do things, you could imply that he would be sort of a mentor person for her. But then she did have a very difficult time in TSR because she didn't have a mentor and she was just the token female of the company. Mm -hmm. which goes to show that maybe she was actually hired for being a girl. Yeah, like, Guy Gax, according to her account, maybe Guy Gax, it could be inferred that, like, he hired her for being a woman because she was a woman, but he didn't want to put in the time and effort mm -hmm. to, like, actually have her succeed at the company. Just the fact that she was there was, like, his due diligence. That was his good deed. Ew. Hate that. I mean, 
she didn't even work for the company that long. She was there for two years. So whatever that says. Gee willikers. My goodness. Goodness gracious. Why would that be? (laughs) I do not know. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Um, About the work culture or the working culture at TSR, she does say that it was a little bit masculine, to put it. She's quoted as saying that they had something called, and I quote, girl alerts that she also helped with. Uh, So she says that sometimes one of us would be staring out the window, thinking or not, depending, I guess, on what was going on. And a pretty girl in a bikini would start to pass us. I would call out down the hall about her like anyone else who watched for the girls. Just picture like her or maybe somebody else just like hands over their mouth and like a little cone like girl alert mm-hmm. and i don't like it not a great image yeah. don't like that so whether or not they had a like a window into what was going on outside but apparently people were walking around in bikinis and every time somebody passed wearing a bikini they would go oh look at the bikini woman well I mean, I I don't know much about Lake Geneva, which is where this office was. But if it was on a lake, I'm in a state in the U.S. that has quite a lot of lakes, which I think most states do. But like being in a lake town is basically like a beach town. Mm. So I guess during certain months, it wouldn't be super surprising to see women walking around in bikinis. But even so, not an invitation to gawk. They're not for your pleasure. Mm. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Don't. Thanks. So it it goes to show a sort of masculine culture. She was the only woman. Yeah. And she was partaking in this masculine culture of pointing out women in bikinis outside. You also have examples from Mary Jo. So Mary Jo's stuff from her time in the company. Yeah. So for context about the advertisements uh, showcasing Elise Guy Gax, we have to point out some basic facts. Elise was a beautiful woman and a beautiful girl. She was the daughter of Mary Jo, also a very beautiful woman. And we know this because it it is prevalent in the pe- people talking about either Elise or Mary Jo and some of the other daughters as well. People have called them beautiful and we do have a specific example of James M. Ward, who did comment on one of Elise's pictures. I have very fond memories of sitting in Gary's office and he and I debating over the of what the percentage should be on the birth rate of elves, dwarves, and orcs. Fun times. And then this lovely red-haired daughter, the one in the above picture, would come get her father for dinner. She's still just as pretty now a zillion years later. So James M. Ward was and is a designer for the original TSR, and he had what we believe is a very close relationship with working with Gary Gygax and the whole Gygax family. It's it's not a problematic comment, I wouldn't say necessarily. What do you think, Sade? No, I don't think it's problematic. It, I, I will say when you first showed me the screenshot of this comment, I... I did have an initial icky feeling, but after learning more about James Ward, we did some research on him for our um, last episode about TSR, and we've stumbled upon some of his 
work in other comments. I don't think he meant this maliciously, which some people could say malicious things and not mean them. But I don't really think this comes off as malicious as to reading it a couple times. I just think it kind of gives off uncle energy. Mm. And, you know, when you go to a family reunion, somebody ruffles your hair. It's just like, oh, you're just as pretty now as you were then. And while I have my own feelings about calling children pretty and handsome, I think cute is a better term. I don't think it's necessarily that creepy in intent. Mm. But I think what's worth noting here, because this is not an isolated comment, whenever you see people a lot of the times on their personal Facebook pages, which are public. Mm -hmm. So we felt kind of icky looking at personal Facebook posts for our research, but it is all public. So eh, I, I don't know. I don't know what the ethics is on that. But on Facebook and even on forums, honestly, there a lot of the comments made about Elise and Mary Jo. Not, I don't think I saw any about Jean Wells. I think the article we found was just yeah the only information we found on her at that time. All the stuff about both these Gygax women are never about their accomplishments at TSR, like how many magazine or sorry, how many copies of the Monster Manual Elise sold by being the poster girl. Like, that's an achievement. Like, her Mm -hmm. beauty could be attributed for their sales. If they indeed sold a lot, we couldn't get that information. And Mary Jo's typing skills, because she was a typist, I believe, at Mm -hmm. some point. Like, they never talk about, like, how much work she put into typing up all the manuals. Like, it's always about their looks. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with being beautiful, owning being beautiful, people commenting on somebody's beauty. There's nothing wrong with that. But I just feel like these women did accomplish a lot more at TSR that we just don't know about because people just can't stop talking about how beautiful they are Mm. and that's kind of an injustice to them in my opinion i don't know these people i don't know these women but in my viewpoint i guess a lot of the work done for the monster manual and tsr and tsr's achievements is attributed to the head gary gygax himself and there's a whole other issue with that with dave arneson as well uh, but what, that's not a topic for this episode. Um, we did find, or rather I did find specifically, Mary Gygax's business card, which she, according to the interview that, or a quote attributed to Mary, she says that she had to fight to get a business card in the first place, that she went to an artist who worked at TSR, to Dave Sutherland, and he finally then gave her a business card that she couldn't even get one from Gary Gygax. So she got her own business card. Now, it has her name in the middle, Mary P. Gygax, and her title, The Woman at TSR Hobbies. She, she is attributed as being the token woman at TSR Hobbies as Without using the word token. Without using the word token. She's just the woman at TSR Hobbies. Now, it does list a bunch of her responsibilities. It's it's quite a cute card. I think she very much liked it. And it has a bunch of her responsibilities around the card. And then they have a little doodle underneath them that kind of showcases the responsibility. So it does say plant tender. And underneath there's a bunch of plants doodled there coffee maker there's a saucer with a cup of coffee on it cleaning lady you have a 
broom and a mop and a bucket of water. Typist. There's a woman with a typewriter and the top of the typewriter is flying off. And then secretary, where we didn't really know what this showcase. There's two people and there's a bunch of movement. It's an action scene happening. But then when you read the interview or the quote attributed to Mary, she describes it as Gary Gygax chasing her around a desk. So the woman at TSR Hobby, the plant tender, the coffee maker, the cleaning lady, typist, and secretary being chased by Mary Gygax. I mean, by Gary Gygax. Just, you know, whole lot of stereotypes all rolled up into one business card. Hmm. What it, do we know her thoughts on the business card? She thought it was very cute. And okay. I think she was happy to get a business card because she wanted one. Whether or not that goes to show about her responsibilities in the company, about how people felt about the wife of the head boss, about how much work she did, we don't know. Hmm. And she seemed to like the business card. But from I guess that's all that matters. Yeah. But it's still from our perspective. Looking it's back just on it. Bit, yeah, looking back on it, it's kind of problematic. But I guess if if her public statement says she's happy with it, mm. then can't really say too much other than that. So I guess just take what description Lissa just gave, form your own opinions on it. Yeah. <laughs> on like either your opinions on Dave Sutherland or TSR, mm -hmm. but we think it adds to the point. But if she's happy with it, I guess you should also take that into consideration too. Mm -hmm. Mary Jo also had, well, she still has actually, a little bit of a reputation or a nickname that people in her close friends would call her and within the family. So a fantasy and horror sci-fi writer called Fritz Lieber, actually attributed a name to her, to Mary Jo, and called her the Pirate Queen. Whether or not this was due to him attributing like a character in his books to her, or it was based on, apparently there's this rumor that's been said to be untrue that she... Uh, swore gave um a whole sentence of swear words and swore like a sailor <laughs> apparently that's an untrue story so that's not the reason she's being called the pirate queen but she was yeah called the pirate queen and notably she received a statue of a pirate queen wearing very little whether or not she looks badass up to interpretation but she had a um an octopusy an octopus coming out of her, you know, vajayjay. Vagina. Vagina. We can say vagina. You've already said it once. Yeah, I <laughs> don't, have. Don't shy away now. You've already bit the bullet. Yep. So it she, she, she called Fritz Lieber a sweet gentleman, and they seem to have a friendship. There's a postcard that he wrote to her calling her the pirate queen and telling her about, you know, how he is and stuff like that. It's... They seem to have a very good friendship, but the the statue is a bit... Again, kind of goes to show, even if it isn't like a statue of her, it's of a pirate queen, the mm -hmm. fact that she was attributed to that name and it is a very sexual statue. Maybe they just had that kind of relationship. Uh -huh. I don't know. But again, 
or Fritz Lieber, I think, was a friend of Gary Gygax. I know Gary Gygax took a lot of his inspiration for the lore of D&D from Fritz Lieber and from mm. his books. Okay. So maybe they just formed a, a bond and they had mm-hmm. this kind of weird relationship. But the fact that Fritz Lieber kind of gave her like the sexualized image, mm. again, from our perspective, kind of weird, kind of iffy, kind of goes to show the environment and like the tags that people the tags that women these women yeah so you if, have you ever seen the movie easy a yes so you know the scene where um emma stone's character and ali michelka's character are on the car and they're talking about what their tag is mm, like what mm-hmm. people refer to him her them are like their characters are. i don't remember their characters names off the top of my head but, like, one of the girl's tags, because she is labeled as a, a slute mm-hmm. in the movie, like, that's her new tag. And the other one's tag is big boobs. And she's really happy with it. Like, that's totally fine. If you're happy with having the tag and having people know you for your big tits, that's awesome. But, like, it kind of reminds me of that scene, mm. how women are just, you know, visual tags are always a sexual thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas for men, it's like, oh, it's their skin color. Oh, it's their hair. Oh, it's their eyes. Oh, it's the way they dress themselves. Mm -hmm. Whereas women, yeah, they might be identified by those things too, but I think more commonly it's always sexual. That's a whole other tangent. We're just about (laughs) out of time. (laughs) Actually, we're just out of time for this section. But um, any other stories about Mary Jo? Interestingly, actually, about the Pirate Queen is they still upkeep the name. There's some merch in the Gary Con, uh, which is the con. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's merch for the Pirate Queen. Which is not an, the octopusy. Uh, so they did have mm-hmm. a, a an illustrator draw up an actual pirate queen, but there is still merch in the Gary Con uh, website today that you can buy for the pirate queen. But since you asked, uh, Mary Jo actually could not get a raise in the actual TSR company that is owned by her husband. She couldn't get a raise in the company. Mm. So what she did was she got hired by Playboy Club, actually. Oh, nice. Uh, Now, Gary didn't like that, so instead of her having to leave to work for the Playboy Club, he gave her a raise. What a power move. (laughs) What a power move. You're not going to give me money? I'm going to work for Playboy. You don't like that? Give me money. Yeah. Power move. We can respect that. Whether that attributes to how much they were making as a company at that time or how much people valued her work, or I don't even know what other considerations we could be making, but it's it's a story in and of itself. Yeah. So with all these stories in mind, we're giving you all of these firsthand accounts. We've rambled a bit, but like, like we said at the beginning of this section, all of these stories are... We're trying to tie back to Elise Gygax and her advertisements and why they happened in the environment that they happened. Because this was a boys club and we have the accounts of two women to kind of corroborate that. One that kind of acknowledges that there was a very boys club environment and she even partook in it, Jean. To Mary Jo, who never said anything bad about the environment, but her experiences, I believe, from an outsider's perspective, speak for themselves. They kind of go to show these two women's experiences that this boys club environment, like there are a lot of boys validating each other, right? Mm -hmm. Like all these decisions 
to put Elise Gygax on the advertisements, to put a 16-year-old girl in the advertisements. They were being okayed by a lot of men who very likely didn't see a problem with it. I don't know if one of these men was was Gary. We don't know if it was even Elise's idea to do this. Mm -hmm. It could have been. And maybe Gary, yeah, and maybe that Gary said, okay, honey, like, you can do this, but, you know, give a caveat ABC. Mm -hmm. So we could have boiled down this section, I think, to a couple of articles written about TSR's boy club, but as a former history minor, (laughs) I will say that I was taught to view history not through secondhand sources and not to view it from like overviews. I was taught to learn it from the stories and experiences of the people there and of the people and like draw your own conclusions and use your own critical thought to kind of formulate a story from evidence of firsthand accounts. So Hopefully you didn't think the section was too rambly. We enjoyed looking into it mm-hmm. and analyzing and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, anything else you want to add before we go on to the next section? Uh, if you want to read the sources yourselves, we always cite our sources. So uh, go to our sources page on our website. Link should be found in our link tree. If you can find that in our Twitter yeah. or on our Instagram at Slovenly Trolls. We always cite our sources like true historians. Uh, so, yeah. you know. We're really good. We're really good about it. Because when you cite things or when you say things, you should always have sources to back it up. Yes. If our years and years of college debt have taught us anything, yes. <laughs> it is that thing. All right. So let's go ahead and move on to our final part, part three, advertising context. So in order to give you context on the time period and on TSR. We will be looking a little bit on advertising theory and how we can read these images and these advertisements as a whole. So now we did an episode on reading art, if you didn't already listen to that episode previously, and how important it is to relate relate as a viewer to the images. So that kind of ties into this Looking at the advertisements that Elise Gygax was featured in, the three that we mentioned, can you relate to either the images or to the text? Because all of these products as advertisements have both image and text. Now, I would claim, based on advertising theory, you do need to be able to recall the ad. And from what I've seen, a lot of people do know of, you know, the advertisement with Elise Gygax or the red-headed woman. It's it's quite memorable because it's it stands out from the different advertisements that we've seen for D&D. We'll go over a little bit of a summary of some of the other advertisements that they've done, but it's it is memorable and it sticks out in a way. And we did We did in the other section say that, like, it's not as effective, like, the first two ads in the 70s weren't as effective as, like, the Gamma World ad. Mm -hmm. But I guess, technically applying this kind of theory of advertising, they were effective because people remember them. Yeah. They aren't effective in, like, showing the experience of the Monster Manual, per Mm -hmm. se, but they are effective. Like, people still remember these ads, whether or not they know it's Elise Gygax or not, they remember these ads. Yeah. 
Another point of advertising is that it needs to get people to not only remember the ads, but to buy the product. Now, I think based on that information, people looking at the ads may not relate to a woman holding up a book or to a woman sitting in front of products. It's not relatable. You've not been in that situation. You, you, it looks nice. It's memorable. But you're more going to relate to the text that's underneath. We didn't read what the text said underneath. We kind of looked at some of the headlines that they had. But some of the text describes, like, it, it gives a product description, and it's the copy of the ad that sells the product. Hopefully, what they were thinking, what I think they were thinking, was that you see the ad, it's memorable, hopefully, and you'll be invited to read the text that's underneath. And then you kind of get the idea of the product itself for the first two ads anyway. Maybe the third one, the Gamma World one, I think that's a little bit of a better one because the image itself invites you into the world and then it's supported by the text description itself. So I think that's a more cohesive example. But for the first two, it tried something, it worked or it didn't, and then they didn't do it again until Gamma World and then they changed it. Yeah, they didn't do it again. Yeah. which is interesting. And we'll, we'll get more into that later because we did make sure that they didn't do it again. Mm-hmm. But I also think the point that you made about inviting people to read the text underneath, in my opinion, I don't think they were <laughs> like <laughs> at all inviting them to do the text underneath yeah. simply because we also, we don't even really know what the text says underneath because we have really low res images. So if anybody has a really high def image that we could have access to, that'd be stellar. Mm-hmm. However... I don't because remember that comment that I talked about where it was just like, oh, I just noticed that there were books behind her. Yeah. Like the people, the people who were viewing this ad who were being most affected by this ad, mm-hmm. I don't think read the text at all. Yeah. Maybe they did. That, that's that's a very general statement and kind of an assumption on my part. But mm. the way even like I I had a graphic design job for two years. But you have a graphic design degree. So you probably know this better than I do. The way that the page is laid out with her image catching your eye Mm -hmm. and, like, the text being so small, they don't want you to read the text first, if at all. They want you to look at the pretty girl holding up the book. Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's so tiny compared to the picture. I don't know. Personal opinion. Sorry to butt. I know you have all this theory and stuff, but I don't know. Just that crossed my mind. (laughs) That actually leads me to my next point, which is in the advertising industry in the 1960s, or beginning in the 1960s, actually, the ad industry focused on images over copy. They used visual triggers more so than they did text. And I think, personally, I could go on a tangent about this. It, it's still equivalent today. I did my whole dissertation on it, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. So we are going more and more into a visual world. I'll just leave it on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that also shows, based on what you said, it was the image over the copy. So the copy kind of maybe supports the product itself. So that maybe says the advertisement wasn't as good as, say, the gamma world would have been. Yeah, it, it's, it's effective in the way that it's memorable, but it's not effective in the way that it, it tells you what the product's about. Mm-hmm. 
And again, we can't really say if it was effective because we don't have access to the sales records from that time. So whether or not it was effective, it did stick in people's minds, but did it sell books? Mm -hmm. Did it sell monster manuals? And I will say also, I did take a class in my undergraduate about advertising. Mm. And it seems like this blend of text and images, like when, because I studied a lot of 1950s advertising Mm -hmm. because it was a history of manhood class, (laughs) actually. (laughs) Where we studied um, basically how the idea of man the idea of manhood came from advertisements. It didn't come from it came from the media. Basically, it didn't come from mm-hmm. like evolution mm-hmm. or anything. It came from the media. Nope. Yeah. And I could again, I could also go off on a tangent about this, but you know, from the 1950s, like most of their ads, like you said, they were all text. Like they're basically like short stories. Mm-hmm. They would paint these visual images, and then sometimes have like images of the product, and then sometimes models, and then you did see the transition later to pictures of like really beautiful illustrations, and then later on photographs. And I think even in the 70s, this is still prevalent because today you don't really see a lot of text on ads. No. At all. It's like you said, it's very visual. It's very visual. So I think the 1970s and even a little bit into the early 80s, they were finally doing away with all those texts. And you can, it's almost like the 1970s is the sweet spot Mm. between like a little bit of text, but big images. And they're not quite sure which one to focus on yet. Yeah. It's kind of like that weird middle child syndrome. Yeah. Not quite sure. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they were... Based on what we've read, that they were doing a lot of stuff in-house and Gary Gygax was in charge charge of marketing as well. So whether or not they had like an actual person to do the marketing, we don't know. But that actually moves me into my next point. Thank you for the segue. I'm so good at those. You're welcome. (laughs) Ads sell fantasies or ads depict fantasies. In the case of Elise Gygax, maybe it's your fantasy is a hot woman. We don't know. But girl, 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 she was 16. Girl. Um, <laughs> Gross. So ads, <laughs> ads specifically change or distort reality, which in the case of the manhood class, yeah, ads create what they think will sell the product. They will emphasize and make you think of a certain thing in a certain way. They're going to make you... Yeah, they're they're trying to manipulate how you think of something. So people read images subconsciously. And I read this whole psych- psychology analytics paper on this. It was way too long and way too psychological. But TLDR, people read images subconsciously. So you're unaware of what information you're processing. So when you see a picture of a man... And you're processing information of what it means to be a man. Whether or not you realize that, you're processing that information. So you are creating a connection between the product and what is the reality created by the ad. Now, in the Gamma World example, they're trying to create the reality of you being in the game, which I think they do pretty well considering with the picture that is depicted there and it's supported by the text and in the previous two it's not really them creating a reality it's just a product photo and just a branding product with a model so it's not really doing that immersive connection so you don't really relate to it again yeah now something that's more 
of an example that I can say not based on the two ads or three ads that we have. We we all know probably about the you're not you when you're hungry kind of Snickers ad. Like yeah. they're creating a world where a hungry person is a gremlin. And then it's funny because it's kind of true because a hun- I know when I'm like hungry or tired, I'm like a entirely different person. I have a whole you different personality. A, what's how can I put this lightly? A jerk. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's it's creating like it's a subtle truth behind it, but you're slightly manufacturing a reality in this case. Another example that I came up with was uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the X ad for dark chocolate, but there is a guy who's walking around made of chocolate and because he uses a product he becomes made of chocolate and women love that and that's a hilarious ad in itself but yeah it's it's altering the reality of using the product Mm -hmm. so it's like building its own it's like doing world building it's like building its own fantasy Mm -hmm. world (laughs) yeah so you're selling this altering the reality to promote the product and right yeah so, yeah, that's some ad theory on that. Um, I also looked into, since we did classify the ads in, or rather with Elise Gygax as being kind of like a, a sex cells thing. So I did yeah. look into the theory of sex cells. And this is quite a recent research study. So this was done in 2020. And they did not one or two, but they did actually four studies for this like paper that I read. And with a total of 800 people being interviewed, 200 so that's 200 people for each study, but a caveat was that this was largely done with heterosexuals. Take a step back and realize that with the results that they found. But this was a study with both men and women being shown both sexualized ads and then with neutral ads. And they essentially rated their reactions to, te- to them and whether or not it was like a positive reaction or to- as a negative reaction to both the product and then whether or not they were influenced by the advertisement itself to buy the said product. Now, they found some really interesting results because when these heterosexual women were shown sexualized ads showing men and women essentially women were turned off by sexualized ads of men and women and they didn't like the product and they didn't want to buy the product as a woman i can confirm this yeah (laughs) i am also turned off by very very sexual ads even I still to this day haven't seen Magic Mike because I don't like it. Like I, I uh-huh. like the I like shirtless men. I'm a heterosexual woman. Mm-hmm. The, I don't want to see a whole movie about it. That's just yeah, I, it's not my jam, and it just feels so gimmicky. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. To frame this with the ads that we looked at about at least guy gags, we do have to recognize that the the study was made with millennial or rather was done. In 2020, so, you know, it's a modern audience reacting to sexualized ads, yes. Right. So now we are aware that sexualized ads exist. We are more aware so than maybe, you know, people back in the day in the 70s. 
but we don't like sexualized ads as, according to the study, as women and as heterosexual women specifically. And now men in the study reacted negatively to sexualized men. So these were heterosexual men and they don't like being or seeing sexualized men. It, it was insignificant, essentially, in the study whether or not it didn't change their opinion of the product or their purchase intention. But that's kind of even a study done in 2020 kind of even relates to we could theoretically relate it to TSR at the time. Mm-hmm. Because like I made the claim before my opinion, men were making these decisions, and they didn't see the problem with not only doing a sexualized ad for a game, a board, not board game, but for Dungeons and Dragons, but also a 16 year old mm-hmm. girl. So that kind of can even tie into that, which is insane. There hasn't really been a whole lot of growth with yeah, that there particular hasn't, sex. There hasn't been growth. And also, if we compare that to the 1970s and if their target market was targeting men, why you see sexualized women is because men were more into that than they were into sexualized men in ads. So that's really weird too. Like before we move on to the next part, because we do have to, we have the next part we're going to be talking about TSR specific advertising strategy because this all ties together. Don't worry. It does. It always does. We ramble a lot, but it does. I promise. (laughs) It's interesting that you say that too, because all of the ads for like cologne, Mm -hmm. underwear, like men's warehouse, which is a um, just like a tuxedo and mm-hmm. basically, yeah, basically that's just a tuxedo place in the states. They're all sexual, but they're trying to sell things to men. But the men are claiming that they're repulsed by it, but they still buy these products. I don't know if it's them being sexualized because this is this all comes down to the male gaze again. So. Yeah. Is it is it yeah. them creating the ideal man which women find attractive or is it them mm. sexualizing the men? Because there is a distinct difference. Because ads create or they they'll create like the idealized man who they think that they want men to be. Yeah, so it, it is like that manhood class. I'm just call it, gonna call it the manhood <laughs> class, not the history of man, just the manhood, the penis class. They were selling the idea of the ideal man for yeah. you to be. Mm-hmm. So they're they're more buying it. If I buy this cologne, if I buy these Ralph Lauren pair of boxer briefs, I will also have a six pack. Yeah, I will also be, you know, Channing Tatum, who I think started out as a male bottle. I don't know. Everything's coming back to Magic Mike. <laughs> like the guy made of chocolate kind of ad with Axe, the dark chocolate ad. It's the guy is literally a made of chocolate. He doesn't he doesn't look very sexy. In fact, he I think he kind of has a dad bod. Um yeah. like it's it's not like the ideal man. It's not sexy in any way, but it becomes sexy to the women because he's made of chocolate and all these women want to eat him. I feel like I can go on a whole tangent about why, how sexist that is, but we do not have time for that on this episode. Maybe that's a future Patreon episode, (laughs) which we will talk more about our Patreon at the end of this episode because we have so much more to say. Yeah. And. But anyway, in conclusion to the, this part that I did, sex sells doesn't work anymore, sort of. 
At least for, for women. Yeah, at least for women. For men, if eh. for men, it's off-putting to see a sexualized man, but it's whether if they see a sexualized woman, it doesn't necessarily make them want to buy the product or change their opinion about the product anyway. So does sex actually sell? That's the caveat question. Moving on to TSR, advertising strategy. Yeah. (laughs) So now that you have digested all of that theory, I get to go into a very, very brief overview of why this theory and how, how this theory applies to TSR specifically. Now, I looked into their advertising strategy from 1974 into the early 80s. From what I found, how this relates to Elise Gygax and her ads, they were really one of a kind, at least using a real female model was never used again, at least in what I found after 1979. I don't even think they use sexy ads in general, but I didn't look too much into that because I would have gone on too many deep dives. Would have not put out this episode on time. (laughs) But as far as I could see, at least from this time period, from 1974 to like the early 80s, she was really one of a kind. However, it was not the first time that TSR tried to target women in their advertising or tried to or used women in their advertising, I should say, because they didn't target women with using Elise Gygax, like like the study that Lissa just talked about, like when women see a sexualized woman or even a sexualized man. I would argue that even if times are different, I just don't think it works the same way personally, but that's, I didn't live during these times. If you were alive and cognizant of advertising in the 1970s, please hit us up so we can hear about your experiences with that. In 1974, TSR started their advertising campaigns with all tax advertisements, so taking inspiration from like the 1950s where it's just telling a story or just selling your product with mostly text and doing small images one of these all text advertisements uses women is how i'll phrase that so in 1977 which is the same year that the elise gygax ads came out i can't say for sure if the elise gygax ads came out first or if they came out after this particular ad this ad is just a full block of text with three images of TSR products. So one of them is the Monster Manual. I think one of them is the Player's Handbook. One's the Dungeon Master's Guide. It's a very, it's not a very high-res picture. I can't really tell. But they do have three guidebooks. And they have an evocative title at the very top of the page. And it says, Why Women Don't Play War Games. Yeah, take a minute to like, (laughs) her face, take a minute to really absorb that title and think in your mind, what do you think this ad is going to say next? (laughs) What do you think the text after that evocative title is going to say? Think about it. Think about it. You're probably wrong, and Lissa will tell you why. (laughs) What does the text say? (laughs) So why women don't play war games? The answer is easy. Most of them haven't heard about the fantasy game, which allows players to fully use imagination and intellect in a unique and challenging system of role-playing. A game in which women play and enjoy equally with men. Here's why. You enter a world of swords and sorcery with Dungeons and Dragons. And it goes into a text uh, explanation of wizards, elves, heroes, dwarves, dungeon master guiding them, 
into the depths of uh, dungeons. Uh, you get weapons and spells and dragons and trolls and demons, and you have to fight stuff, and doom awaits at every turn. I did not think that that's what the text was going to be after I saw that title, because when I saw the title, Why Women Don't Play War Games, honestly, I thought whoever was wrote writing the ad was going to mansplain to me why they didn't. And I mean, they kind of did. They kind of did. But it was, you can tell there is an attempt to say women are on equal playing ground as men. Women play Dungeons and Dragons. But the lack of effort put into drawing in women, because like, okay, I'm a woman. I'm a cis woman. Lissa, you are a cis woman. When you see that title, Why Women Don't Play War Games, which is in the biggest text on the page, Mm -hmm. draws you right in. Mm -hmm. If you just saw that across the street, would you want to read the rest of that ad? Okay, so that's that's an unfair question to me specifically because out of spite, <laughs> out of spite, so that I can complain to complain to you like five minutes after I've read this. Yes, I would read the cap, uh, the text that comes underneath because I, out of spite, I would. But if this was that's me true. in the nineteen seventies and it was trying to get me to join as a as a non feminist, it was trying to get me to join people playing D anD D. No. Right. This sounds like an article about facts. This sounds like why women reasons why women don't play D and D. Why why would I why would I read that? It almost sounds like a BuzzFeed article. <laughs> and it's gonna go in like a bunch of lists like this is why women don't play this. It sounds like a list of reasons why I shouldn't play D and D is what it sounds like if I weren't a feminist and doing this out of spite. Yeah. So maybe like, would you go over and read it wasn't the right question, but maybe, yeah, like what kind of, what text do you think would follow that? Or why women don't play war games isn't even a question. It's a statement. But that's the only advertising that I could find that also targeted women around this time or that utilized women, I should say, because that one specifically is allegedly trying to get women to play D&D. I don't think they went about it the right way. And I could tell you 12 different ways that they could have done it better probably because the rhetoric in that advertisement is awful and i don't think they did it consciously i think it was subconscious because we have come across information from gary gygax himself in i believe an n world post which we talked about in our first episode we plugged the first episode a lot in this so i'm so sorry do listen to it if you want to you don't have to (laughs) i feel like we're saying you have to read you have to watch this in order to understand what we're talking about not really we'll we'll give you the tldr But really, we did come across a quote from Gary Gygax while researching our first episode that he he did specifically say that he didn't think that women had the brain capacity, basically, to play D&D. And he just stopped trying to appeal to them because he didn't see women enjoying it, either from his own experiences or his own biases. Mm -hmm. So I think whether or not he was in charge of this ad or maybe he surrounded himself with, with people of the same mindset. Maybe they did give effort to try to bring women into D&D, but they still subconsciously didn't think that they belonged there. This advertisement, I think, is just dripping with that, with the subconscious of like, yeah, we'll appeal to you, but like we still don't want you here because that title is awful. Why Women Don't Play War Games, it's evocative. And I don't think it's evocative in the way that it's like, rage marketing like trying to be so offensive in your marketing strategy that you do actually sell more products Mm -hmm. like the old gossip girl ads that the cw put out where they took 
bad reviews and reviews that were calling the show really inappropriate and a parent's worst nightmare. Like they use that to their advantage. That was very intentional. And I don't think this was. I think they really didn't want women to play, but they maybe did this ad to, I don't know, say that, oh, no, look, we did try to attract women, but they just didn't want to play for some reason. I mean, we said that Gary Gygax was in the marketing department and that he made, yeah. he he didn't really have that much. I mean, he worked as an writing insurance before he got into game making. It seems like reverse psychology. Like they tried something with reverse psychology, not knowing anything about reverse psychology or psychology in general. And they were like, let's make out a bold statement that like what, why this is why women won't play D&D and that'll get them to play D&D. And while that works right, with a yeah. modern audience, like feminists and like me, because I would just do it out of spite, I don't know that it would work with... So were they ahead of their time? Maybe. Or were they just doing something dumb? Also, maybe. Anyway, I didn't mean to like go in a whole <laughs> tangent about this one ad, but I just kind of wanted to highlight it because also in 1977, they used women. They tried appealing to women with this full text ad appealing in quotes and then they also did the Elise Gygax ads and then for the rest of their late 70s early 80s advertisement they didn't really do this again which I thought was interesting so right after so 1979 was the last Elise Gygax ad in 1980 to 1982 they started an ad campaign called a Dungeons and Dragons adventure which was a comic strip ad that ran on the back of comic books or on the last page of comic books. And that, I believe, was also an ad that was very memorable for a lot of people. It also kind of has a problematic depiction of women. We don't have a lot of time to get into it. But all I'll say is um, boob plate and damsel in distress motif. That's all I'm going to say. So I'm going to say if you want us to do a deep dive into it, please let us know. But we don't have time <laughs> for me to go on more tangents. So right after that, so or continuing on into the 80s, I should say, they went from that text ad to Elise Gygax to that comic book ad to basically targeting families and young people very, very explicitly. So the next ads to come out during this time, right post Elise Gygax and kind of where I stopped my research, they ran ad campaign for D&D that's also pretty famous because only because and I say I think it was famous for people at the time but I only heard about it because Critical Role emulated it in their first promo images of campaign two it's the who needs to hang around ad campaign which I believe was just one or two ads with a boy with overalls a kind of leaning up against a picture of his friends playing D&D behind him very simple very evocative of just friends in like their late childhood early teenhood playing D&D which I think was most of the age bracket for playing D&D at the time and then they also had an ad around this time but with for the dungeon board game that just showed a nuclear family of a mom dad a brother and a sister all playing the dungeon board game together basically advertising it as family fun mm -hmm. so I just thought it was interesting to point out that right after the Elise Gygax ads ran they completely changed their marketing strategy and kind of stuck to family marketing and comic marketing and marketing to children, basically. So they tried marketing to adults, I would argue, at the very early 
stages with all those big text ads because kids don't have the attention span to read all that text. No. In my experience, after working with children, after being a children, (laughs) like they don't have the attention span. So they switched from advertising for adults, I would argue, with the text ads, Elise Gygax using a 16-year-old to market to adults. That's a whole other topic. Anyway. (laughs) Um, And then they just stopped doing it. So I don't know if we could say that they learned their lesson. I don't know if they could say they got better at knowing who their audience was and what worked for them. Well, hang on. What about the satanic panic? When was Satanic panic. (gasps) Oh, my God. (laughs) Because. That could also be it. Specifically, (laughs) specifically, I, I do know that they the satanic panic did have to do with like how or they had to change their marketing because they were being perceived as you know the demon the devil devil worship etc etc they had to keep like a family friendly image after you know this one guy went missing and they blamed it on D&D because he was an antisocial nerd and instead of just having mental health issues, he D&D was the bane of their existence. God damn it. Yeah, no, you're I think that's also a part of it too. I I think cuz the satanic panic I don't know the exact time frame of, but it was definitely during the 80s. And if parents also would have seen those ads with Elise Gygax being a bit sexy, they would have also turn that against TSR and be like, not only is Dungeons & Dragons promoting demons, it's also promoting sexy women, Mm -hmm. which I'm making a face because I don't really know what to say to that. But (laughs) yeah, it's I think that might be correct because I don't I mean, I could look into later, like seeing if they did use the satanic panic to their advantage, kind of like that reverse psychology marketing Mm -hmm. or like that outrage marketing. I don't believe they did. But Maybe they were really trying to clean up their image and being more family friendly because of satanic panic. I didn't even think about that. Brilliant. (laughs) Because during that time, I think, well, during that whole time, a lot of video and board games just other than, you know, TSR and D&D, they did target children and families in a way that... you're right. Because Ernie Ernie Gygax himself, in the interview that I talked about more on the TSR episode, he did say that he compared the reason why he came up with the idea for them being the game wizards was because all these other game companies had like a a focus point and this like family friendly thing and they were the game wizards. So that's why they use the wizards thing. So going off of that, we're just about out of time. But one more point I would like to bring up in terms of advertising theory, and again, this whole episode kind of hyper-focusing on why the Elise Gygax ads happened the way they did. I think a big, big part of that, not only because I think during this time, TSR was trying to understand who they were as a brand, I think was the point I was trying to get to by looking into like the history of TSR ads as well. They kept kind of redefining how they wanted to market to people, in part maybe because of the satanic panic, or maybe they were finding out their audience, either or. We can't really say for sure. I wanted to also point out that the mass market advertisements on TV and in magazines during the 70s, I found a couple of articles doing deep dives into it that I will link in our sources. They were so sexist, (laughs) or a a very, very large majority of them. 
at least in two categories. So it's usually with products that are being sold to women is specifically what the articles were about. But I think this also applies to advertisements that were specifically selling products just to any sex in the 70s. So I broke them down to two categories. One, women being sold products to appeal more to men. And two, women being used as decoration and objects to sell products to basically anybody, but probably mostly to men. The women being sold products to appeal more to men, you could just think of, you know, makeup, bras, even cigarettes. They made very sexual. You're like, hey, you want to get a husband? You should get a raspy voice and be a chain smoker for the rest of your life. That's how you get men. Hot. <laughs> I won't really go much too much into that because I don't think it's super relevant. But if you do want to see this at work, please do yourself a favor. Google loves baby soft shaving cream ads. You will find magazine ads and hopefully also a TV advertisement that has scarred me for the rest of my life. And I showed it to Lissa. And now I'm showing it to all of you. Well, I can't actually, but I'm encouraging you to find it. If you want a reason to be disgusted and get a little bit angry, go ahead and look it up. If you don't, that's cool too. That's all I'll say about it. <laughs> It'll be linked in the sources. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I could do that. The second category I think appeals more to Elise Gygax, and it's women being used as decoration and objects to sell other products. That was also very prevalent. And I saw a lot of examples about like women, like basically using women as props. Specifically, I saw a lot of examples with cars. And like, let's say there's a Corvette and there's a woman just draped on top of the Corvette and just like, hey, you should drive a Corvette and maybe having some sort of evocative double entendre title basically implying that the woman comes with the car or like if you have this car you can get this attractive woman or some woman like her there's also ones for cigarettes there's ones i could go on honestly i could just go on and on but one i found that really reminded me of the elise skygax ads was an ad for weyenberg massagic shoes i hope i'm pronouncing that right it's w-e-y-e-n-b-e-r-g M-A-S-S-A-G-I-C, if you want to look it up while I'm talking about it very briefly. It's a woman kind of laying on the floor, looking dreamily at a pair of shoes, and the title is Keep Her Where She Belongs. Ugh. Honestly, I don't really know what this ad is trying to say, and we don't have enough time for me to <laughs> think about, or even Lissa to think about, what this ad is trying to say. So just kind of Take in that title. And Lissa's grown. <laughs> <laughs> that ad reminded me of the Elise Gygax ads because especially the Gamma World ad and the Where the Action Is ad, they use that kind of double entendre in their strategy. Did they take inspiration from the ads of the time? Very, very likely. If you are in marketing or dipping your toe into marketing, one of the first rules, I believe, is that you have to look around what the competition is doing to fit in with trends. Mm -hmm. So they probably got inspiration from these and they maybe applied them to very innocent photo shoots with Elise Gygax or maybe they were aware of what they were doing from the offset. I don't know. This advertising environment, finding their brand identity and advertising theory, I think altogether mixed up really goes to show that, I don't know, what, 
Lisa, what do you think it goes to show before? Because I feel like I've been talking for a hot second. What do you think it goes to show? Like, how does advertising theory tie back to Elise Gygax? How can it help our audience and us really better understand why this photo shoot happened? Well, it those are tools that we can use to look at the ads. And I mean, we we gave our opinions on what we think what we think happened of how we applied our, the theories that we read about. We we essentially gave our opinions, but you know, you are your own people. We've given you the tools for looking at ads. You can make your own decisions. Were they were they sexist? Were they sexualizing a 16-year-old? Were they did they work? Did they didn't? Did they not? I I know how to speak English. Hello. While we don't have the information about sales in a way, does it work for you? Does it work to want yeah. you to buy the product? It's it's all contextualizing the ads that we found and the ads of TSR and the ads of the time. And it's forming an opinion based on context and background information. And while we have opinions and we like to let you know them, what you know, what what we mm-hmm. think of things. It's it's your prerogative to come up with your own and we've given you the tools to do that. And I think that's it's we're we're try- just trying to s- share information that we've found so that, you know, when you're looking at stuff about TSR or when you're reading about TSR or when TSR four comes around and, you know, you're there to see the shit show that is on Twitter, you know where they're coming from and what the history is and where the connections are, where the lines are. It's it's making yourself more knowledgeable about things. And this is yeah. it's make this is specifically about ads and TSR ads. And ads in general. Yeah. I think TLDR. That sums it up. Yeah. I, I couldn't have put it better myself. So I think that's a really good part really good point to end this part on so without further ado let's why don't we talk about our closing closing thoughts all right so closing thoughts again like every episode we just threw a lot of information out at you we talked about the elise gygax ads gave you a nice little description but you can also find the pictures on our social medias did a little bit of analysis and then contextualized all of it, talked about TSR at the time that these ads were coming out through some firsthand accounts. We talked about advertising and advertising theory. We talked about TSR's journey in advertising. We talked about just (laughs) so many things, so many things. My closing thoughts for this episode are I have a hypothesis. So about specifically the significance of Elise Gygax, I guess, or I guess It wouldn't quite be a hypothesis. I guess this is my thesis statement. If I could give this episode a thesis statement, which usually thesis statements are at the beginning, but I digress. (laughs) I think that given all the information that we've said today and also some other research, I believe that using Elise Gygax, they did it very intentionally. And I believe that Though the advertising of TSR has changed throughout the years or had changed throughout the years from like the time that the Elise Gygax ads came out to when they started aiming more towards families, I honestly don't think that their intended audience changed that much. I think they always targeted 
prepubescent boys in their advertising because they used a conventionally attractive girl, 16-year-old girl, not woman, girl, and then 18-year-old in 1979. And then they targeted children by putting ads on comic books and they targeted children again by using family stuff and family methodologies. I think their target audience has always been the same, but just the way that they approached it was always differently. They started right off the gate with sex cells using their first face model, and then they just kind of adapted it with the times after that. And using Elise Gygax kind of, while it's a more like in-your-face sexy campaign, I think it's still at the end of it all, especially knowing what we know about the other aspects of TSR at the time, I still think they knew who their audience was. If not prepubescent boys, then at least men. Because even as the theory Lisa talked about, like they advertising with sexy figures doesn't really affect women. And there weren't a lot of women at this company to tell them that. <laughs> so they just went with it. So thesis statement, they knew what they were doing. It's creepy. But it proves that TSR, in my opinion, it proves that TSR and AD&D have always had a very specific demographic in mind. And that is prepubescent boys and just men mm-hmm. in general. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> I, on the other hand, I think that they did have a target audience in mind. And I think that they had certain targeting mechanisms that they used to target this audience they looked at the different ways that other products in their competition were doing they changed their their style to fit their competition but i also want to play the devil's advocate and say that maybe in the case of elise gygax she she knew she was a very pretty girl she knew she was the daughter of the head of tsr and this was her chance to maybe showcase herself and to maybe start a modeling career if that's what something that she wanted to do. She, I don't know if she came up with the idea of being the model for the products or if that was her father or somebody else in the company and that she was talked into it. But the way she poses with the products tells me that she likes the attention and she likes and I, that's not a bad thing in a way because this it's a it's a boost for her self-confidence she knows that she's good looking and this could be the start of you know something new maybe a modeling career because she looks very beautiful and she is very prominent in these ads so in a way, yes, it's sexualizing a 16-year-old from the point of Gary Gygax and TSR, but in her mind, it's making a difference and putting herself out there. And she's not going to be thinking about, oh, they're going to sexualize me. She just wants to look good, and she wants other people to know that she looks good. And maybe if she wants to get a you know, modeling career, it's something to you know, build on. I'm just, yeah, devil's advocate. Maybe she wanted to be part of this. You can make your own decisions based on the ads. Did we have any closing other arguments, statements that we want to make? No, I think I think ending them on those two separate takeaways is good. And I think it's it can also foster discussion with your audience. 
our listeners, our lovely harlots. That's what I've been calling people on social media. But if you want to give yourselves other names, let us know. Yeah, I think that's that's a good place to segue to. Um, please follow us on social media <laughs> and engage with us. And tell us your theories. Tell us what you take away from Elise Gygax and advertising during this time. Your theories. Please be nice. Again, this is somebody who is still alive, who is a very private person. And we hold no hard feelings towards her. We... This is not meant to be hateful in any way. This is just really from an analytical perspective, from an outside perspective. But if you do have any other theories that you'd like to share with us, please hit us up on Twitter at Slovenly Trolls, Instagram at Slovenly Trolls. If you're feeling particularly wordy, you can also <laughs> uh, hit us up uh, on our email, which is just slovenlytrolls at gmail.com. And while you're communicating with us, please consider reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and rating us on Apple Podcasts. And I'd like to, again, put out a little feeler. So the next review that we see on Apple Podcasts, a written review, not just a star review, a written review, I will personally write you a thank you slash love letter in iambic pentameter, just because I like iambic pentameter and I need an excuse to use it more often. And it just sounds nice. And I would love to do that for the next person who leaves us a written review. It really does help the podcast. And we love to hear what you think, critiques and praises all. Also, we mentioned our Patreon earlier. We, it's still kind of under construction now. We're under the Can't Be Killed Creations Patreon. We're brainstorming ideas on what we're going to be doing there in the coming weeks. So please keep your eye on that. You can find the links to our Patreon at can'tbekilledcreations.com slash the dash slovenly dash trolls that's kind of our landing page so you'll find our sources there and links to our patreon and twitter so keep an eye on all those and i think that's it i think it's all the the self promo that i can handle because it always feels awkward every time doing that so (laughs) thank you so much for listening thank you thank you and don't forget the number one rule of dnd don't be be a dick Bye. Bye. Slovenly trolls, slovenly trolls, we're big bad evil girls. The Slovenly Trolls podcast is part of the Can't Be Killed Creations podcast network. Make sure to check us out at can'tbekilledcreations.com.